So do you all still want to talk? <laughs> um, here's what I'd like to, I'm going to do a talk that I've never done in this way before. And we'll see, we'll see how it goes. We'll see what it's like. Um, but, I'm, but I am going to give you one nice quote. Because I found one. Um, and the quote is this, to live, to live is so startling. To live is so startling, there is little time for anything else. <laughs> to live is so startling that there is little time for anything else. From Emily Dickinson. It's a beautiful understanding of what's happening here, which is the magic or mystery or wonder of what's happening? What are we? We're alive. And what is that? But that's not what I'm going to talk about exactly. But it was such a good quote, I thought, okay, I'll just start with it and get it in there. So what I want to talk about a little is the Buddha and the Buddha's relationship to his body. Because most of us have a relationship with our body, right? For, for better or for worse, however it is. And in the Buddhist mythology, um, there's the story of the Buddha's awakening and what happens, how does that happen? And it's a beautiful story and it's a beautiful religious story and it's a beautiful story about the Buddha and it's also an archetypal story that points to the truth beyond the individual life of the historical person of the Buddha. It points to a truth that's bigger than just, oh, this is the Buddha. The, when I say archetypal, it means it's something that relates to each person sitting here. It's a human story or a story of the potential available to us as human beings. And he, um, he had an interesting life and it's kind of, I think it's kind of fascinating to l actually learn about it a little more than we usually learn. And so I'd like to tell you a little bit about it. And the first thing is, like all human beings, he was born, right? And he was born, uh, and his birth was a little bit kind of miraculous, you know, or holy or something. His mother was hanging on to a tree, right? Mom's hanging on to a tree, and this is how the Buddha is born. <coughs> Except, excuse me, he didn't come out that way, right? Mom's hanging on to a tree. He comes out of her side, right? He comes out of her side partly to represent the purity of what's happening here. And he's born into a high caste in his time in India, right? And his parents are royalty and king and there's a certain amount of wealth and privilege in his situation that's built in. And he's going to inherit a kingdom. He's born to inherit his father's kingdom. And um, uh, soon after his birth, um, uh, a great seer comes to meet the baby and read the child's fortune. And the, the um, seer 
uh, tells the father that uh, Gotama, Gotama uh, Siddhartha, uh, will either become a great monarch, a great king, or, or will become a great saint, will become a holy man. And so the father's, um, he loves hearing the great king part. He's not happy about the great saint part. Like that's a nice idea, but this is my son and I'm the king and I want him to be the king. I don't want him to go be a saint. And so one of the things that happened in the Buddha's life, which may have happened in your life in some way, is his parents were a little manipulative about what they wanted from him, right? Like they wanted him to go a certain way, the kingdom way. And so, and so he designs, the father designs a, a really royal life for his son, one that fosters, supports the princely role, and shelters him from unpleasant contact with the outside world. Right, so he wants him to live in a royal world, in a in a world that's very special, so that he will continue to live in that specialness. And the Buddha described his life. He described what his life was like in this way. And now I'm quoting from the Buddha. And the Buddha is very personal at times. And this is his personal reflection of what it was like. He says. Practitioners, he's talking to practitioners. I lived in refinement. I lived in refinement, utmost refinement, total refinement. My father even had lotus ponds made in our palace, one where red lotuses bloomed, one where white lotuses bloomed, one where blue lotuses bloomed, all for my sake. Right? So this is his home, and he's describing what his life was like and how life was created for him. And he says, A white sunshade was held over me night and day to protect me from cold, heat, dust, dirt, and dew. And then he continues to tell. He's just, you know, talking to practitioners in this personal way. And he says, And I had three palaces. One for the cold season, one for the um, one for the where was it cold season, one for the hot season, one for the rainy season. In the four months of the rainy season, I was entertained in the rainy season palace by minstrels without a single man amongst them. Okay, are you listening? Yeah, some people are listening. In the four months of the rainy season, I was entertained in the rainy season palace by minstrels without a single man amongst them. And I did not once come down from that palace. Okay, you all get the picture here? Do I have to explain this at all? Okay, I just want to, you know, I can't tell, you know, Marin people may be too pure or something. I, or, or not. <laughs> so, so he lives a luxurious life of royalty. And it's an exuberant life. It's a hedonistic life. Right? How many people knew that the Buddha was a total hedonist? 
Really, no, no. This is an important fact about the Buddha and the Buddha's awakening. And so if any of you have ever been a hedonist, it won't stop you from becoming a Buddha. I want to assure you. And, you know, the way his life was set up, nothing unpleasant was to enter his sight. Even his father would have servants pick dead flowers after they died off the lawn at night so they wouldn't be there in the morning for him to see the dying flower or the dying beauty of reality, right? And, and then as he got older and was not coming down from the rainy season palace with only men entertaining, and people who weren't men entertaining him, um, he, um, how is it said? He indulged the world of sense pleasures. He was a hedonist and he liked it. And his father supported that. And so his father, it said, um, had a special chamber of love constructed for him, decorated with erotic art and illuminated with subdued light. So you could think an early India U. Hefner kind of situation <laughs> for the Buddha. And it said that he was absorbed in sexual delights and he would spend his days and nights in continual dalliance. And but what's interesting, because this is the Buddha's life, is uh, that didn't do it for him. There, there was still a tension in the story that continued. And you can even think about your own life if you've had some hedonistic exuberance at some point in your life, which, you know, I kind of hope you've all had some of, you know, it's, I'm, I'm not against that at all. But, but it, it can be... Uh, Often we, what happens when we have that is we start thinking, oh, that's it. That's what I want. How can I make that continue? How's that going to keep going? And then something happens because it doesn't stay the same in some way. So the tension for the Buddha was held by his father who didn't, think, who didn't want him to leave the palace, who didn't want him to leave his birthright, <laughs> who didn't want to leave his destiny as his father understood it. And, you know, he, he lived in this hedonism, sexual hedonism, but also material hedonism. He had all the best things you could have at that time, at that place, right? And it's, it's part of our societies. People want the best, right? And when I was writing this, and I, this is the first time I've ever given this talk. I, I wrote this. This is actually part of uh, a book I was working on. And, um, and I, somewhere about five years ago, I did a Google search for luxury items. And you could buy then, it's probably more now, you could buy a Rolls Royce for 360000 But Ferraris were cheap. They were only about 270000 And, you know, if you like good wine, you could get some of the really good wine at twenty or 30000 a bottle, right? And now I'm sure it's a little more, but, you know. And what I'm pointing at is this movement, this desire for the goodies, for the best, for the special, is something that's trans generational, transcultural 
in that way. And so it's part of what we as human beings have been dealing with and taught or guided towards at times in order to be happy, in order to be fulfilled. And then at some point, generally, we see, oh, that doesn't do the job, right? So, um, <clears throat> so at some point, right, the Buddha's, you know, having a great life, great sex, a lot of it, a lot of, lot of play, a lot of fun, a lot of dalliance, a lot of cultural, you know, music and theater and everything. And, and at some point he becomes dissatisfied. That he becomes, and this is, it just happens naturally. Nothing in particular happened, but there's some kind of turning in his being that's an archetypal turning starts to happen. That's something that's what we might call an existential crisis happens for the Buddha. Like he has a good life and it doesn't do it for him. It doesn't fulfill him. It's something's off, something's wrong. And one version of this, and I'll, tell you, I'll give you the version, one version emphasizes it happens in his sexual life or it's, it's displayed. One early morning, the prince awakes from a troubled sleep following a frenzied orgy. Anxious, he looks around him and sees a tableau of people disheveled and sleeping all around him, drooling and snoring. And he's, as he looks at the naked bodies and disheveled bodies, his anxiety increases. And all at once he perceives the flaws of his companions and the uh, experience, experiences a feeling of meaninglessness that illuminates the emptiness of his life of excess. Now this, this is a classic description of what's called disillusionment. And it's an important part of the Buddhist path, actually. And it happens in the deepest meditation at times, where one just starts everything, you just see dukkha. And dukkha becomes the eye that you're looking from. If you don't know, the word dukkha is generally translated as suffering. But it's, be, it's a much broader than how we generally think about suffering. So being disillusioned is a way, a, a form of dukkha. Or being, being too full, or not having enough food, or having to pee and there's no place to pee. They're all forms of dukkha. Or getting killed is dukkha. Or losing all your riches is dukkha. Or having so much money and it's not satisfying is dukkha, right? And so, and so being... Um, uh, he, he, he starts to perceive the meaninglessness of his life. And that's a very important part of practice for people because none of us want to feel like things are meaningless. We all want to reject that idea. And I'm not saying everything's meaningless, but I'm saying at a certain point in the evolution of the heart and mind, that's the perception of reality. And it's one of the awakening perceptions if we learn how to stay present and awake to the sense of meaninglessness that is part of human reality. 
And so, and so it said in this part of the story, it says that same morning, Gotama decides to flee the golden cage his father had set up for him, and he vows to seek awakening, right? So the benefit of the disillusionment with ordinary life, conventional life, usual life, is not that it's all so bad, but it wakes up something in us that we call not even sure what the right word is and we could call it the spiritual life we could call it the depth the desire to know the depths of reality or the profundity of who and what we are beyond conventional reality and that's important and that's powerful and so and then there's a more traditional version of what happened in the buddha's turning which is called the Four Heavenly Messengers. How many people know the Four Heavenly Messengers? Let me just see, so I'll say it just quickly. We have a new program at Spirit Rock now called the Four Heavenly Messengers, or the Heavenly Messengers. And what it is, is in, in the Heavenly Messengers version, the Gotama witnesses the suffering of human beings. And he first, he, you remember, he's living in this protected world that his father created to keep him there. And he starts to want to go out and see, well, what, what the hell is around? What, what's out there? And so he goes out and he sees people who aren't, um, uh, haven't been hidden from him by his father. And on his first excursion, he sees an ill person. He's never seen a sick person before. And he, it's disturbing to him. And his second, he goes and he sees an old person. He's never seen that before. And then his third, he sees a dying person. He's never seen that before. These are called, in Buddhism, which has its paradoxical humor at times, these are called the heavenly messengers, right? Illness, old age, death. And they're important parts of human reality. And so the Buddha saw this. He's, he had never seen an aged person or people without teeth or unable to walk or ill. Or, and he's shaken by it. His, his okayness is shaken up. His sense of, oh, everything's fine and going to be fine and that's the way reality is. Everything's cool. It's shaken up. And it's a good shaken up because it, inst- it, it, it instigates a turning in his heart and soul. And, and finally, actually, the fourth heavenly messenger he sees is a wandering ascetic. And so he described it, and again, this is the Buddha's words, describes his turning. He says, even though I was endowed with such good fortune, with total refinement, the thought occurred to me when an untaught, ordinary person, himself subject to aging, not beyond aging, sees another who is aged, who is horrified or humiliated or disgusted or oblivious to himself, then he too is subject to aging. If I, who am subject to aging, not beyond aging, would be horrified or humiliated or disgusted on seeing another person who is aged, that would not be fitting for me. And what he's saying here is to be reactive to it, to be averse to it, to be judgmental of it, 
that wouldn't be a mature view. That wouldn't be seeing reality as it is. And so he, he, this happens for him. He starts to wake up a little bit about this. And then it happens again with the, uh, um, it happens with the aged person. He realizes whole age. And then the last thing it says, it says, because the truth of impermanence starts to shine its light in his heart and mind right? Because he could see it, which he'd been protected from it. And, and the last thing he says, he says, the typical young person's intoxication with youth entirely dropped away. Now that's an important line, right? He sees all this stuff. He says, oh, it would not be fitting just to be in reaction to someone who is aged. That would not be fitting for me. He said, and the typical young person's intoxication with youth entirely dropped away. And then he goes on to talk about what happens as he sees the old person. You know, how would, how would an untaught ordinary person so, who himself or herself subject to illness, not beyond the illness, who sees an ill person, is she is horrified or humiliated or disgusted, you know, that she's oblivious to the fact that she too is subject to illness. And if I, who am also subject to illness, not beyond illness, would be horrified or disgusted on seeing a person who is ill, that would not be fitting for me. And as I notice this, the healthy person's intoxication with health entirely dropped away. Right? The healthy person's intoxication with health entirely dropped away. And then he continues, he says, you know, what if I, I were to see a dead person, a dying person? What if an untaught ordinary person who is subject to death, not beyond death, sees someone who is dead and they're horrified or disgusted or, or oblivious to the fact that they themselves are too, are also subject to death. If I, who am subject to death, were to act like that, it would not be fitting for me. And as I notice this, the living person's intoxication with life entirely dropped away. Now that's, that's I could end the talk here, right? Because he's saying something about our intoxication with youth, with health, and with life. Now, and notice how you hear it. Like really, this is where you want to pay attention and be mindful of how you're hearing it and any reaction you have. Because usually when people hear the Buddha saying, oh yeah, I got over my intoxication with youth, health, and life. People think often that's a bad thing, that he lost something. Where for him, it awoke something. Because he didn't say, oh, don't love life, don't appreciate health, health, don't enjoy youth. He's not say, he didn't say that. He's pointing at something here. Intoxication. What is that? Anybody here ever been intoxicated? <laughs> Do you know the pitfall of it? Right, seriously. Because believe me, I've been intoxicated. And although, <laughs> although... <laughs> It's funny, I'm proud of what I haven't been intoxicated on. (laughs) 
I've never drank. <laughs> I was never a drinker. I, I did a lot of other drugs, but, <laughs> but, but I, never, I, never, I never drank and got intoxicated. It wasn't my drug of choice. Really funny that way. But, but believe me, I did plenty of other things that you should all be embarrassed for me for having done that. So, so he's looking at illness, old age, death, and he's looking at his reaction to these facts. And what he's seeing is that there's an underlying belief or image or idea of the body as an infallible source of happiness, of strength, beauty, youth. And he's saying, whoa, that intoxication, that fell away. And so he starts to look at reality in a mature way. He starts to see things as they are. He's not condemning anything at all. He's just saying, oh, what I've been projecting, that's not true. That's not the way life is. And when we're not intoxicated, we're not seeing clearly. And so he leaves the palace and renounces his worldly privilege at that point. And he does something that maybe some of you have done. He, has a, he does have a reaction to his hedonism. Anybody here ever been a serious hedonist and then had a reaction to it? Because I have, yeah, at least one of my friends is here. Good San Francisco insight, beautiful. Um, <laughs> he, um, he goes and he... Um, He's seeking something that doesn't age, that doesn't get ill, that doesn't die, that, uh, that isn't rooted in the conditional. He's looking for freedom. And so he, and he finds teachers and he goes with them and he learns a lot and he becomes an ascetic, right? He starts doing what's called ascetic practice. And ascetic practice means you are very, you are not doing hedonism. It's the opposite kind, it's the opposite joy of hedonism, right? It's not, your joy is not from pleasure. Your joy is by being, not going towards pleasure and even going towards pain in order to wake up, in order to see what's true or what reality is. And somebody has to tell me, what time do we end? A quarter after nine. Okay, I've got time. Thanks. Um, um, so he starts doing ascetic practice, and he describes it. And these are extreme, and I'm not recommending this for anybody, but he says, here again, the Buddha talking, he says, suppose that I clenching my teeth and pressing my tongue against the roof of my mouth would beat down, constrain, and crush my mind with my awareness. And, he, and then he talks about how it felt. He says, just as if a strong man seizing a weaker man by the head or the throat or the shoulders would have beat him down, constrained and crushed him, I did the same with my mind and my awareness. And as I did so, sweat poured from my armpits. And, thir- and although tireless persistence was aroused in me and unmuddled mindfulness established, my body was aroused and uncalm because of the pain painful exertion, right? So he's saying, okay, here I did it. I did this really strong, 
you know, ascetic practice. It had some positives, but it had some negatives. And then he gives another extreme version that he did, and this is really not recommended. He says, and then I thought, suppose I were to become absorbed in the trance of non-breathing. So I stopped the in-breath and the out-breath, right? Anybody ever done that? So I know a little bit about it because sometimes in some of the deep samadhi states, and I had this happen once, the breathing stops. And I don't mean a pause. I mean it stops. I've had plenty of pauses in my years of practice. But in a certain practice I was doing with a monastic, very deep, the breathing stopped. And it was wild. And it wasn't like, uh, it wasn't exciting wild. It was like, I, I could, it felt like, oh, I was just between worlds for a while. And it was, it was interesting. But I, again, I'm not, I didn't try to do it. It happened. Anyhow, but he says he was doing it on purpose. So I stopped the in-breath and the out-breath. And he said, the re- he said, there were loud winds roaring through my ears. And as I did so, extreme forces sliced through my head, just as if a strong man were slicing my head with a sharp sword. And extreme pains arose in my head, as if a strong man were tightening a turban made of tough leather straps around my head. And extreme forces carved up my stomach cavity, as if a butcher were to carve up the cavity of an ox. And he, he, he goes, I mean, I can keep going on. Uh, there was an extreme burning in my body, just as if two strong men grabbing a weaker man, by, weaker man by the arms were to roast and broil him over a pit of hot embers. So he did some serious practice, you know, that didn't work. And he says, although tireless persistence and mindfulness were established, my body was aroused and uncalm because of the painful exertion. And I have more stories here. I'm not going to go into all of them. You know, he lived on one grain of rice a day, and even the gods couldn't tell if he was alive or dead. And you know, it's he was he he, he whatever he did, he was a serious practitioner, really, and tremendous respect for that intention to discover reality. That's the archetypal piece for all of us. Right? I'm not saying, oh yeah, you have to go be an ascetic and do exactly what the Buddha did. But finding that part of your heart that wants to know the truth of reality and letting that live and letting that lead you, I respect that totally, totally. And it's in each of you or you wouldn't be here because there's some reason you're looking for freedom from suffering. And so then he says, whatever ascetic practices people have done in the future, the present, whether they are painful, racking, piercing, feelings due to striving, none is greater than what I have felt. But with this racking practice of austerities, I haven't attained any superior human state, any distinction and knowledge or vision worthy of the noble ones. And this is, remember, I, this is from a writing I did and I wrote, Woo, I'm so glad those practices did not work. <laughs> Can you imagine if that's what we had to do to get enlightened? You know, to wake up? 
And so the Buddha, who had this swing, right, total hedonist, rich kid, royalty, hedonist, enjoyed it, but then it didn't satisfy something. He goes to the other extreme, ascetic, fierce practice, a lot of pain, a lot of, um, uh, um, you know, unpleasurable experience of body and heart. And then he has a third swing. And uh, so, and, and mostly I just want to mention those because those archetypal poles of hedonism or asceticism, even if we don't act them out fully, they live in us to some extent where we think, oh yeah, if I do this, oh yeah, if I do that, if I'm like this, I get a little more of this, or I, do, I shouldn't do that, so I'm going to be really hard on myself this week. Or, you know, I've done that to myself. And, you know, it doesn't work. But it's said, and it's said in this way, it said, Gotama asked himself a question. And I love that because inquiry, investigation, is such an important part of the process of awakening looking at reality closely, looking at our experience and of what this is that is looking at experience closely is what will start to reveal it. And we can use our intelligence, not just our mind, pure mindfulness. That's not the only um, skillful means we have. It's one key skillful means. But the Buddha asked himself a question. He said, could there be another path to awakening, right? I mean, at least for me, great question. Glad he asked it. (laughs) And here's a really interesting part of the story of the Buddha because the answer comes from a surprising place, but I don't think it will surprise us given what we know in our culture. The answer came... Well, here, I'm going to tell you the story and then I'll talk a little about the answer. Uh, he said, I recalled, once when I, w- I recalled once when I was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree. Right? I remembered, I recalled once when I was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree. And so, so he remembers something. And I think this is important. He remembers something from his childhood. Right? And that, is, I think, is really an invaluable part of the story because a memory comes to him from childhood. And it's a memory of a state of being that is very pure. And that we can often see in children the purity of children, the innocence of children, the unmechanicalness of children, the beingness of children that's inherent to all of us. It's part of all of us. It's not so far away because it's not really um, uh, um, simply divided by time. Time is a concept that's overlaid on reality. But the purity of who and what we are, sitting right in your seat, whether we're in touch with it or not, that's a different question. But it's not so far away. 
And it's not so exotic or it's not so extreme that we have to do ascetic practice. Although, you know, once in a while that can even help. But he remembers this archetypal image reflecting in the beauty of the natural world as the ground to beginning to discover his own inner beauty, his own inner awakeness, right? And so he says, quite withdrawn from sense pleasure and from unskillful mental qualities, I entered and remained in first jhana. That's one of these deeper levels of concentration. First jhana, rapture and pleasure, born from withdrawal, accompanied by thought, evaluation. And I thought to myself in this deep state of meditation, he says, could this be the path to awakening? And then comes an epiphany for him. He has an insight. He has a direct knowing. And he has an intuition. He understands. He says, that is the path to awakening. And I thought, so why am I so afraid? Because, and he says, why am I afraid of the pleasure that has nothing to do with unskillful mental qualities? Because if the jhanas, these deep states of meditation, are incredibly pleasurable. And they're often, some teachers won't teach them because they say, oh no, it's too pleasurable. People get attached to them, no good. But really, any I don't agree with that, okay? Let's, let me say it that way. But there's a kind of centeredness, sometimes described by one of my favorite teachers, Suzuki Roshi, collectedness or composure that comes when the heart and mind and body are together, are unfragmented. That is a deep state of of samadhi. I don't even like the word concentration because concentration has a very mechanical uh, feel to it and implication. And we've all been told we should concentrate more and there's tension involved. But really samadhi, when it happens, it's like, we're just here. And the here-ness is knowing everything. We're not doing anything. And the hereness has a tremendous pleasure of the beingness of being here. And it's beautiful, beautiful. And it can be very simple. It does, it's not just ecstatic pleasureness. It can be quiet pleasureness or simple pleasureness. But with, there's just a hereness that is not fra- a fragmented sense of personality and identity and all that stuff. And so he said, He said, could this be the path to awakening? And then I realized, he says, that is the path to awakening. And I thought, why am I so afraid? Why am I afraid of this kind of pleasure? And I thought, I am no longer afraid of that pleasure, which has nothing to do with unskillful mental qualities. So he's he's making a discernment. He sees, oh, this is a pure pleasure. This is not a constructed pleasure. This is not a pleasure based on, oh, I'm thinking about you know winning the lottery and getting a million dollars. This is not a pleasure remembering having great sex you know, two years ago by, with somebody I met for one night or, or whatever it might be. That, or this is not the pleasure of the Giants winning six games in a row or, or the Niners winning the, you know, the Super Bowl or whatever it is. 
There's pleasures that come with ideas, with memories. This is pure pleasure of itself in the beingness of what's here. And so the memory opens up a new doorway to enlightenment, which came to him. And he says, but it is not, and then he's, he's also discerning, okay, what's happening? Because that happens as part of the meditative process. It's not just, boom, you wake up and that's it. No, things happen, and then you reflect, or you acknowledge, or you see, or it all happens on its own. You don't even do it. It all starts to happen. There's, a, I can't remember the turn, there's a awakening and then the reflection of awakening in the, in the process of insight happens naturally. It's not something we have to remember to do. And so, so it opened up this sense of potential and he says, but it's not easy to achieve that pleasure with a body so extremely emaciated because he'd been living on one grain of rice. And he says, suppose I were to take some food, some rice and porridge. Again, in my mind, I'm so happy he learned. It, it went this way. I'm not a big one, one grain of rice a day guy, you know. And... Um, and the Buddha was not afraid to look at reality and let go of whatever identity he had been identified with up until that point. That's also an important thing to know for all of us because we all get identified with what we know and we think that's it, that's who we are. And then if we, get, we can get rigid about that or concretize so we don't let reality keep revealing itself to us. So I love his as an example of, as an archetype of awakening and the potential for awakening that sits here. And also he, you know, he trusted himself, right? He said, suppose I would take some food, some rice and porridge. And it's a good question because if you're ascetic and you're not eating and then you start eating, you're nobody. You've lost your status. Boom. Right? And so he says, I thought to myself, I'm afraid of a bliss that is not based on wrongful states of mind. And my heart told me I was not afraid. And then it's really one of the beautiful, you know, and his friends who'd seen him start to eat, they come and they, they saw him. They think, you know, basically he's a wimp. You know, he's, he's, not, he's not the real thing anymore. He's indulging in food. And so Gautama trusts himself. And then an interesting thing happens here that's not so well known. It's a little bit known but I think it should be no more well-known. So he decides to eat, and this is an important step in his finding the middle way, right, between hedonism and asceticism. He finds the middle path, and he sees, oh, the middle path will take me to what I'm seeking, right? Great, great for all of us that he discovered this. And what happens is, so he's exhausted, he's hungry because he hasn't been eating. You know, and I didn't even read you the stuff about how he looked like he was dead. When along comes a young milkmaid, 
in her late teens and offers some porridge or milk rice, food that will enliven him and sets the stage for his awakening. Right? This is one of the most underappreciated, undervalued images in the Buddhist text that, from my view, his awakening pivots on the nourishment offered by a young nubile woman. Now, this is the earth image and the mother image combined. This is the feminine image of awakening and its role in this case, the goodness of the feminine or the good breast or the fecundity of the earth and its role in the awakening of all of us. That there is something inherently good here that if we don't pay attention to, we won't wake up, whether you're a man or a woman, doesn't matter, to, wait, to pay attention to that aspect of reality because that is part of the archetype of what supports awakening to happen. And so he realizes that there's this middle way and he understands there's a role for pleasure, for delight, for ease, for relaxation, for joy, for bliss in the process of awakening. <clears throat> and now he dwells in what's called the fourth jhana. And the fourth jhana, remember the first jhana I was saying was these states of uh, samadhi. The fourth jhana is characterized not just by the pleasure or bliss or good feeling. It's there, but it's very quiet in the fourth jhana. It, jhana. <laughs> it's characterized by equanimity. Fourth jhana characterized, this fourth state of absorption is characterized by total balance. And his mind, and I love to read this, is described as concentrated, purified, bright, unblemished, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability. Right? You ever have your mind feel like that? <laughs> It can happen, and it's, it's a beautiful, even to have a taste of it, it's a beautiful feeling when you have that kind of level of equanimity. And his body is part of the presence that allows his mind to be open and bright and awake and clear and fluid and malleable. Remember that word malleable is in there. It means it's touchable. His consciousness is present, not in an abstract or distant way, but in a totally open and contactful way to reality. And, and his body is supporting that now with its being cared for and nourished, and his mind is not disconnected from his embodiment. And this becomes the ground of awakening. And he sits up that night, and he goes through the three watches of the night, the three stages of enlightenment. And he awakes in three ways happen. I'm just going to give you a brief little glimpse of that. And he, um, he starts to, um, first watch of the night, he starts to, he turns his concentrated mind and body, he turns to himself. And he starts to wake up in a personal way. He starts to see his personalness, his personal narrative very clearly. 
which means he also sees, you know, all the lives he's ever lived, and uh, both as a human and non-living. And from this realization, seeing the changing nature of consciousness as it moves through lives, and you could think of it as past lives, or really, and this is one of the nice things about getting older, you can just look at this life and see, oh, I've lived a lot of different lives in this life, that that's happened already. And it's one of, personally, it happened for me, I got very clear about this because I had a serious bike accident almost two years ago now, a year and a half ago, and, uh, and I almost died. And, um, and it's been an interesting coming back. But what happened was I didn't come back at first. I wasn't there in the normal way. And there was a certain amount, there was definitely some serious dukkha and suffering, broken body and all kinds of stuff. But there was also a very interesting reflection about seeing, oh, the, people started telling me, oh, here's who you are, Eugene, or who's, here's who you were, or here's what happened. Oh, and there were all these lives that I've lived. And then they started to light up again. Like I started to know them again, but not in the same way that I knew them before, not with the same kind of um, fixated identity to them. And really beautiful to start to see, oh, wow, all these lives I've been, I've already lived a ton of lives in this life. And, and there's, more, there's more happening even now. It's kind of wild how life is or how every day is a new life, ultimately, if we're really present. And so the Buddha sees this. He sees, he sees impermanence. He sees his own impermanent nature and his own selfless nature. And then in the second watch of the night, he turns from the personal to the universal. He starts to see other beings, other lives, other ways that people have lived and suffered and gotten free. And it really rouses a tremendous compassion for him, for the suffering of all beings. And then in the third watch of the night, he lets go of the personal and the universal. Like that's not what's in the foreground for him. What happens is he simply comes into the present moment in a complete way. In a way that we're still learning what, that, what the potential of that is like for each of us to be here totally. And his view is suffused with a full hereness, a full presence, a depth of reality that reveals itself to him. And it's not even like there's a separate him. There's, he is that reality. You are the reality you're looking for. It's nowhere else. It's right here. What you seek, it's sitting right here. Discover what this is. Pay attention to what this is, to the depth of what's sitting in your seat. You will discover what the Buddha discovered. And he understands then, and it's revealed to him, he understands the truth of suffering and the cause of suffering and the cessation of suffering and the path that leads to freedom. Because it's all sitting in his seat, just like it's sitting in your seat. And that becomes his awakening. And then there's a beautiful moment in the teaching. 
He has his awakening. And what does he do? Like, how does the human being respond? The the awakeness of reality, how does it respond to reality? He puts, he's sitting like I'm sitting, right? Only he wakes up and he touches the earth. He touches the earth with his hand. And at that moment, he becomes fully awake. So let's sit for a moment before we end. appreciating our time here together, the blessings of us being here together to study what's sitting in our seat and in each seat, to discover the beauty of the reality that's sitting in each seat. May the benefit of our practice be for the good of each of us, and for the benefit of all beings in all directions, in all worlds. May all beings be happy, peaceful. May all beings be free from suffering. May our suffering, their suffering, all suffering be a doorway to discover the end of suffering the freedom from suffering, the awakeness that's sitting here. May all beings wake up, awaken, discover the depth of reality that's sitting in every seat, in every being, May all beings be free. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.